This is Land and Power, a podcast where we talk to people of color about land and about the groundbreaking and thoughtful work they do related to land. When you think about land, what do you picture? For me, I envision the sagebrush and valleys where I grew up. On this episode, we're defining land in a more untraditional way. The land, or more specifically, the place we're talking about, is Main Streets. We'll talk with an expert who studies Main Streets and considers them a kind of love song to ourselves. My name's Yolanda Altamirano. I grew up in the eastern side of the Cascades in the Shrub Step Desert, on the ancestral and present-day homelands of the Yakima people. I've been lucky to see and learn from my indigenous relatives caring for the land, both in Mexico and in eastern Washington. As a woman of color with indigenous blood in me, I care about the future we can have based on the relations I see in black, indigenous, and other communities of color. I work at a land trust called Forterra, and I helped make this podcast along with a few of my coworkers. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Mindy Fullalove. Mindy is a social psychiatrist and a professor of urban policy and health at the New School in New York. She studies cities as a source of health or disease, and she's been doing a deep dive into exploring main streets. In fact, Mindy wrote an entire book about it. We'll talk to her about that, and we'll ask Mindy about another aspect of her work, something called collective recovery, which is a way for communities to come together and heal from trauma. Our host is Forterra's Susan Greylock Usum. She'll be talking with Mindy. And here's a fun fact. Susan is a trained eco-psychologist. Eco-psychology is about our connection to the natural world and how that interconnection is essential to our health and well-being. They spoke in the late summer of 2020 when Mindy joined us from her home in New Jersey. Mindy Full of Love had heard this idea over and over. Main streets are dead, but that's not what she thought. We know main streets have fallen on hard times, but to her, they didn't seem dead. And the idea, that paradox, intrigued her. She wondered, what's happening with main streets? That question kept her returning to Main Streets, almost 200 of them, and writing a book about it called Main Street, How a City's Heart Connects Us All. Mindy wanted to find out how Main Streets contribute to our mental health and well-being. At every Main Street, she would try to connect with a friend to have lunch and meet the Main Street together. Wandering the streets, checking out the stores, soaking up the architecture, and sampling local ice cream spots. We were in... Massachusetts this summer, in, in, in this town, Newburyport, there was an ice cream store that had chocolate milk cookies. And it, it was really made with chocolate milk. So it wasn't milk chocolate, it was chocolate milk. It was mind-boggling. I loved it so much. There's a shop like that near me in Washington on Port Townsend's Main Street. It's a hub. And I remember going to a place like that as a kid in Delaware, I loved it when my grandparents took me there to get a root beer popsicle after a day at the beach. When I think of that popsicle, I think of family and a good day outside, feeling safe, loved, and connected. I asked Mindy how she defined a main street. She said at first she had a strict definition, but the definition evolved to include things like pop-up markets, festivals, and fairs. So my definition of a main street is that it's, it's an amalgam of the civic, the social, the commercial, around a public thoroughfare, which is how a pop-up Christmas market can be a main street. So um, I, I would include a lot of things as main streets that perhaps others wouldn't. My definition is very big. Yeah, when you said that, I remember traveling 
in England once and it was late. I was traveling alone and I wandered into a Christmas market. And I do remember how welcoming it felt. And I often go there in my mind and I remember it in so many ways. And it was the most welcoming place. I don't even quite remember what town it was in at this point, but I can see the people and you know, the foods and the warmth of the glow, the tents and the light. I mean, it really is that essence of what you're saying. Just helping to sum up what a main street is. Can you, um, can you pinpoint like three things that um, you've learned from main streets? Three, the three bigger pieces that you've gained from walking so many? The biggest thing I've learned is that we're in a net a worldwide net of main streets. And so that that is the biggest thing that the main streets taught me. Well, wow, so that's that's really interesting. So you think there's this web of so do you think of it as like the heart of a place and those hearts are actually all connected around the world? I do. I do. I I'm a social psychiatrist and in my discipline Alexandra Layton who's one of the founders said that Really, it's our social connections that are the foundation of health and mental health. And so in in the built environment, I see these main streets as being like nodes and the streets as being connectors. And then so really a whole worldwide net of connection that engages all of us. Uh, the second is that they um, really are spaces of invention and communication and activity and and delight so they become very important in all moments of you know crisis and transition that that we have such spaces that we can use and so to think creatively about it what what should be happening in this space at this moment to help us very important and i, I think the third thing is that as you point out, we're actors on Main Street. But there are really two forces in opposition. So there are the real estate forces and the development forces that only want to use it for commerce or market rate apartments. And then there's the whole life of the people that's lived around the Main Street. These are in opposition. And unbridled development destroys the net of the people. This is a catastrophe for society. So how to bridle capitalism is one of the hugest questions that I walk away from my study with. It can't be that capitalism makes all the decisions because it doesn't respect the habitat that people need to survive. So we have to have a more balanced approach to how we live with our economy. The net of people's relationships is the basis of society. And if you destroy that, you have no society and you have no profit. You just have illness and disaster and climate change and catastrophe. And that's not what we want. No, that's not what we want. Mindy says we want the opposite. We want main streets to be places that are welcoming and loving. Think of that ice cream cone and root beer popsicle. And the subtitle of her book reflects this central idea how a city's heart connects us all. I do think of Main Streets as, as these nodes, as these hearts that sort of pulse, pulsing, pushing things out, um, moving things along. And 
And I, and I do think that uh, unless we have loving societies, we all fall into ill health. It, it takes a lot of love to do the work that societies have to do. We have to solve problems together. If you're not loving, you're not going to listen to the other people. And you're not going to be able to solve problems. It doesn't matter what the problem. It could be a small problem. It could be a big problem. You know, you want to pick up litter in the street. You want to stop gang violence. You want to control COVID. People have to listen to each other. And you want to listen to as many people as you possibly can because you just never know who has the answer. You know that story about a truck that's stuck in a tunnel and nobody knows what to do, how to get it out? And a little boy comes along and he says, why don't you let some air out of the tires? solves the problem. So you have to listen to everybody. So so love is very essential. Main streets as nodes of the city are places of, of welcome. They're places to pull in the passerby. And you can't pull in the passerby uh, unless you have some sense we want you to stop here. And so Main Streets demonstrate their basic attitude of love by all kinds of tools. For example, shop windows. Shop windows are really important. Part of what makes us stop is we see an attractive shop window and we want to go inside. And then we have grand civic buildings. Grand civic buildings are like reflect to us our importance, that we're so important that the city made a beautiful city hall, beautiful library for us to come into. So main streets have embedded in them this communication of love. If they don't, they don't work. So a main street can't be hostile. Now, that doesn't mean that in a highly divided society, main streets haven't truncated their target audience. So we're only welcoming to this group of people and and left others out. But that's part of how our society is failing and why we're in such profound crisis at this moment because we have said i'll love who's inside my circle but not the other people you can't run a society that way well it'd be great to talk a little about collective recovery um i mean that's something that you've really been i think you started working on during 9 11 and then especially now during covid um, and also during this race, racism reckoning that we're going through culturally. Can you talk a little bit about what um, what collective recovery means? Collective recovery is the repair of the injuries to the social system. So in a disaster like this, where everybody had to retreat to their houses, as we pulled apart, we broke a lot of social connections. Like my favorite restaurant, Coogan's, going out of business it was a very important social gathering space for people in Washington Heights. So now that that space is gone, people won't cross paths in the same way. So that's a rupture. So how do we, how do we reconnect people? And so that's what collective recovery takes on is the reconnection. But we also know that in those moments of disconnection, people feel awful and that they need support for, for their, their emotions as well as for, to get them back together with other people. So that's what collective recovery is. And we talk about it as one of our friends quipped 4321, 
and that, that there are four tasks that we talk about, which are, that groups have to do in the face of a disaster, which we call remember, respect, learn, and connect. And these are tasks that organizations do. And then the organizations have to do those tasks really in what we call three directions. And that's with other organizations, with the constituents, and with the policymakers and the politicians. And organizations, so four tasks carried out in three directions, gets us to the goal, the one goal, of a just and sustainable future. So that's our 4321. And we'd like to mm -hmm. say every organization, the point of organizations is they're already doing stuff. So they don't have to do new stuff. They just have to incorporate the 4321 into what they're doing. So a supermarket can say, eat broccoli, don't gain the quarantine 19. A bank can say something, whatever banks need to say to help us feel better. And in that way, every organization takes a little piece and we all get better. It seems like a perfect time um, for this simple and easy to understand idea of collective recovery. How, I mean, it's, it just seems like exactly what we kind of way we need to be thinking now. Do you, um, do you, have you found nonprofits or community organizations to be really receptive or to understand what that looks like? So I'm part of a free people's university called the University of Orange, which is where this collective recovery project is located. And we were wondering um, how, what it would be like for organizations, what do they need to know in order to, to, to get what we're asking them? Because everybody is very focused. So we asked 12 organizations that we work with if they would come to a, a course that we organize, a, a pilot training uh, over three sessions. And we explained it to them. And what was remarkable was that everybody everybody did get it. And, and it's sort of, there is a little hump. So it was really good that we had the training to help them see. But once they were past the little hump of like how we were talking about what we were trying to say, many of them felt like, actually, we do this all the time. That That is what we do, especially organizations that were working in very poor neighborhoods where there've been a lot of disasters are actually doing this constantly, this collective recovery. So we had a really good, a really good experience of teaching people and now we're working to take what we learned from the organizations that we're, we're closely partnered with to make it more available to organizations all across the nation. I mean, we need to reach things like the Fortune 500 companies. I don't know how we do that, but, uh, but the one thing I do know is that the government was slow to respond to COVID and what made a shelter in place was that the NBA canceled its season and South by Southwest canceled its conference. So these were powerful organizations that said, no, we have to respect this. And everybody fell in line behind them. So I have no question that if organizations would step up, the recovery would be put on a, on a whole new dimension, a whole new rocket, rocketed into reality. And what, what does that look like? I mean, it seems like it's almost, when you look at that example of South by Southwest, it's, um, it's a, it seems like a very simple move to just be more, have a human response to the moment of what is, what is the obvious thing we need to do here and just taking that move. 
you know, it's, it's really for each organization to say. So for example, you work with a, this community development corporation. What is it that you can contribute? When you think about the four tasks, remember, respect, learn, and connect, what would, what would fit with your mission? What piece is yours? It's different from the NBA, but the NBA has a piece and you have a piece. So, so that's the question. It's really, what's yours to do? Yeah, I can, and I think, and I can see that I'm thinking about the work that Forterra has been doing in Tacoma in the Hilltop neighborhood. And a part of that has been actually remembering, learning the history, uh, understanding what like redlining looked like in Tacoma and that that was a real thing and how that impact still being felt. And, and also thinking too about walking the neighborhood and understanding it better and looking for things. And as you're saying that, and I'm thinking about for Tara's work as an example. And I think you said this about other nonprofits too. It's they're they're kind of already doing that, but I think there's a real power in the having a tool where you become really conscious of the what you're doing and what that looks like. Is that something that you see like it's really helping there's something that you're kind of doing naturally, but the value in articulating it and explain like hey, you're actually doing these four things. I, I think it's really important to see how every organization does the four tasks, remember, respect, learn, and connect, and then asks, what in this moment should we be doing? As all the surveys of the population show that anxiety and depression are through the roof, and the economic problems that we're about to go into, for example, homelessness, are terrifying. So what do we do? And so I have to ask my, my organizations that, and you have to ask your organizations that. So the, but if, if each organization says, here's how we can help, we're going to do food pantries or say legal aid, we're going to get all the lawyers in America to help the tenants. The, if we were to do those things, each of us taking a piece, we would stabilize. As a social psychiatrist, I see us in free fall right at the moment as a nation. We're not handling the pandemic. The people in power in the nation are using racism as a battering ram. It's almost like domestic violence against the population, certainly against the black population. We're about to go into a terrible depression because of our mismanagement and climate change, right? Two hurricanes moving towards the Gulf this week. So we're in free fall, but the organizations could stabilize the situation and get us into a calmer space so that we can figure out how we go forward. It's almost like if you were, you know, riding a bike and your brakes weren't working and you had to use your feet to stop yourself. The organizations, we have the feet to slow this thing down and to get it stable so that we can talk to each other, we can listen to each other. That's a really interesting idea right now, especially thinking about organizations creating these centers, which is relating to me to your Main Street idea as well. The organizations can actually be these nodes that can stop and remember, reflect, learn and connect. I mean, that they could actually do that and help have a substantial, become stronger nodes and help this network to kind of to stabilize itself. Absolutely. The four words are remember, respect, learn, and connect. Remember, respect, learn, and connect.
I think it's a really important point you make too about um, a corporation, like a for-profit corporation could do the same thing and it could completely align with the values of that organization, whatever it looks like for them and what they do and what their interest is could easily, they find the way they can plug into remember, respect, learn, connect. Yeah, I think for-profit corporations, some of them know that, that they need a stable world to make profit. Some of them don't. But if all the ones that do understand that a chaotic society is going to kill the economy, if they were to take a piece, it would really help. Many thanks to Mindy for sharing her time and expertise with us. If you want to find out more about Mindy Fullalove and her work, you can go to mainstreetnj.blogspot.com. And if you want to connect with us and learn more about what we do as a land trust, go to forterra.org. This podcast was produced by Kyle Norris in partnership with the team at Forterra, Everett Lawson, Susan Graylock-Usum, Toby Levy, and me, Yolanda Altamirano. In our next episode, we'll talk with the famous black bird watcher, not the one you've probably heard about who was assaulted in Central Park, but one who was an ornithologist, professor, and author, who wrote something called Nine Rules for the Black Bird Watcher. That conversation with J. Drew Lanham is on our next episode of Land and Power.